Hello and welcome to the Show and Tell, the podcast series from the RPG Academy, where we bring on a guest and we talk about something cool. Today's guest is Christopher Gray. You can find his work over at Christopher.world, and you can also find him on Twitter at GrayAuthor. And something cool is the Kickstarter that by the time you're hearing this will have already been out for a couple of days called The Happiest Apocalypse on Earth, the role-playing game, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is a powered by the apocalypse system that sort of combines noir, some horror elements, and the happiest place on earth. Christopher, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. This is great. Wonderful to be here. Pleasure to have you on, sir. So for anyone who's not familiar with you off the bat, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do within the RPG community? Well, I, um, I've been a gamer my whole life, but I haven't been active in the community except for the last couple of years. Um, what happened was I was in the 90s playing really brilliant games like Palladium Rifts and thinking it was, you know, the best thing ever. I was even making uh, systems based on the Rift system that were even worse. Yes. Uh, and... well, I mean, most, of, most of us have done something like, you know, we're in college. We, we were experimenting. We it's were okay. experimenting. It started in high school for me and, you know, yeah. obviously D&D. And uh, as I went to college, everybody moved away and I didn't know that people gamed anymore. So I, I went down the MMO route regrettably <laughs> but then, uh, uh, about three three years ago or so i got, got back into it i saw everybody was still around and you know, i used the internet and realized you could use the internet you know to game with people it's not just cat videos it's amazing all the things that you can do on the internet so i got back into it and really started screaming um uh big into D D and started developing modules for dm skill i got a couple of those out there and and then started developing i mean i can't not design so so I, I i fell into power by the apocalypse pretty early on and and my resurgence and and just loved the system loved its its compatibility with uh different ideas i love how you can cater things and and the player driven model model it was great so i embraced that but i still like to play the legacy games that that's it really i mean i'm an author and i've published books i've uh, i'm also a publisher so this is sort of the nexus of all of my great skills. My day job is marketing, so I get all this stuff together, and it's just like I'm running with it, and, and I'm just uh, so happy that the industry's blooming. You know, we've gone to a $1.2 billion industry. It's really exciting to me. I mean, it was not the 90s, no more, you know. <laughs> I think we're going mainstream, and I just love being on the wave. It, it absolutely feels like a bubble, but but I'm always worried, like, when is it going to bust then? <laughs> You know, because you're right, it seems like every day role-playing games, D&D, have become more mainstream, more popular. People that, you know, they're coming out of, for lack of a better term, they're coming out of the closet as gamers. Yeah. Recently on uh, the Game of Thrones won an award, and the the writers, one of them thanked their parents for letting them play D&D. <laughs> that, that inspired them to get into what into the job of being a writer and a TV creator. So, it, you know, it's just it's just blossoming. But there's a part of me, that kid that grew up in the 80s, like, when is this going to turn around and yeah. hurt us? Yeah, I know what you mean. But, man, you know, I think it's true. What happened was the geeks grew up and now they're in charge. So I don't <laughs> I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's here to stay. It's in Hollywood. It's in music. Uh, you know, it's 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 in the, the streaming world. Um, and it's not just role playing games it's tabletop games. And I think it has a lot to do with technology. We um, are so different now. We are so detached from one another and we almost hunger this kind of activity where we can be humans again and. And when you combine that with print-on-demand and crowdfunding and, you know, all of these great things we have now, the Internet, 
suddenly there are no barriers. We can we can be geek proudly. <laughs> exactly. Let that geek flag fly. <laughs> so uh, so you mentioned you have a couple products on DMs Guild. Name drop. So if people want to go check those out, what, where do they go? Yeah, I um I tinkered a bit with the with the five E system, so there's some some things in there like if you want to do some rules for factions, I have Christopher Gray's factions. I did um I did a, a fun job on trying to figure out how to create your own magic items, and so I have a crafting module. But my favorite, I have these um Forgotten Realms modules that were the start of a long campaign, um, that admittedly fell by the wayside after the third adventure but i i do want to continue that forward uh, uh taking place in the border kingdoms which if you've ever done any research with greenwood and his uh, vision of the border kingdoms it's just fantastic and it's the one unexplored area of Faerun where you can just <laughs> do whatever you want um so i have this real fun uh trilogy if you will uh level one to five uh a series of adventures that take place there Oh, very cool. I, uh, I've i thought about trying to do something on DM skill. I, I kind of feel like I should at this point for as long <laughs> as we've been around and, you know, we, we profess that we know something like what we're doing. Uh, but I'm just lazy. <laughs> and it's really hard to keep the podcast going. I mean, I just, you know, there's I put in so much time to the show. It's hard to do much else. But uh, Caleb and I have been working on a module for literally for years, but we're not moving very fast fast with it but maybe someday i'm hoping someday we'll do something with that so that inspires me to see other people doing that that's awesome man it's a great outlet you know and i'm working with 2c gaming who's here out of california and uh, i knew them from strategicon and we're putting together uh, a module called let's kill strahd and it's it's a one shot the idea is you go into ravenloft you kill the vamp that's the whole purpose of the game <laughs> nothing else none of this staying around in barovia and investigating stuff no you're in there to kill strahd and so there's it's going to be a lot of fun we're going to put that out this year and um it, you know you can do things like that on dm's guild you can run with the intellectual property you can play in Faerun. you can kill strahd uh and and it gives people an outlet but it, it is it's harder than you would think i mean you need to be at least a little bit competent with the rules you need to have some sort of design sense um and and the community is great though and it is just a fun place to play yeah, it, it seems, you know, it's not quite the Wild West, but it's kind of an open season. And, you know, like anything, the cream will rise to the top. And, you know, I, I could throw a Word document on there right now, but no one's going to care about it. You know, you kind of have to have some art, whether you do it yourself or you have access to artists or whatever. You know, you can lay out some sort of, you know, like I said, design sense that looks kind of pretty. And uh, so, yeah, so that, that's that's probably more than anything why we haven't done it yet is I'm just I'm intimidated to try to break those those things down. But we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you. So let's move into what the, to what the game is going to be. And then we'll wrap up with what the Kickstarter is and all that information. Great. So uh, so the title sets it up pretty well. But but Christopher, what is the happiest apocalypse on Earth? A role playing game. It's a, uh, a powered by the apocalypse uh, game that takes place in a children's theme park that mixes a lot of horror and satire. So the idea is that we're going to take all of those things that we consider innocent and wonderful and charming in our childhood, and we're going to turn it on its head, and we're going to make it horrible, terrifying, and, um, and, and, and gruesome. And so this is sort of a part of the culture that we've seen on, on the Internet lately with things like creepy pasta or 
Five Nights at Freddy's where you, you know, you're just taking these sort of childhood gems and you're ripping them apart and turning them into something horrifying. And that's the point of it. You know, we, we, we really, everything that you know and love is going to scare and terrify you. And when we're going to go right down into the middle of it, and we're going to target the biggest innocent of them all and, and just make it a shrine to, uh, to Lovecraftian horror. Okay. Um, so, so why this? Like, what is the inspiration behind this? My kid. <laughs> he's, he's a nine-year-old uh, uh, drummer in a rock band, uh, you know, and listens to Metallica when he's mad. So that guy and I like to play role-playing games together. We got into Powered by the Apocalypse because I wanted to really try it out, and he was, you know, the first person I game with and I asked him well what kind of game do you want to play and here are all of your choices and he said Tremulous because he saw the cover and so oh, okay great and um, so we started with Tremulous we moved into Monster of the Week and we really started getting into some of these other PBTA games and then he said you know what I want to play at Disneyland I said all right so um, I realized that the games that we had didn't really fit that exactly right started working on my own ideas and systems and it was because of him and we ran with it and and a lot of his ideas are in here um and you know he's a big fan of creepypasta and some of these internet memes and so he's showing me inspirations you know this is the this is the psychotic princess with the butcher knife that needs to be in the game you know this is the this is the uh, animatronic pirate that's killing a guest that needs to be in the game. And so, yeah, we worked together and he, I stole a lot of his ideas. <laughs> Perfect. Now I don't have the greatest history with power by the apocalypse games. I, I love the idea behind them. I just don't like rolling 2d6. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to get over that. Uh, but for anyone who's not, who's not familiar with it would give us the skinny on what a powered by the apocalypse game is. And then we'll talk about some of the differences that you brought to the table. Absolutely. So uh, powered by the apocalypse actually came from apocalypse world, which was developed by Vincent Baker, a couple of other peoples who, uh, whose name eludes me for the moment, but he's sort of the chieftain of the system. And it's not really a system. It's not like D20 where you have like, you know, these are the rules that you adapt or hack to create something else. I, I, I consider it more like a framework or a, a, a concept. And the idea is that you, uh, you have a narrative that you're driving forward and that's the focus of the game. That's the key mechanic. Everything you do must drive the story forward. Now the game master or in apocalypse language is called DMC doesn't really have a lot of control over what happens. There isn't a lot of planning. Now, the Game Master will will create uh, scenarios and incidents, as I call them in Happiest Apocalypse, that have threats or dangers. And those are things that have uh, a clock on them. It's like, you know, it's going to start off here, and it's going to do this, and this, and this, and this. And uh, if the players don't do anything about it, it's going to end here. But everything you do is a reaction to the players. So the players have moves, and then you can make moves. And uh, the moves might be soft, like, okay, this pirate is coming at you with a sword, what do you do? Or the moves can be hard. This pirate has stabbed you with his sword, what do you do? And um, the, the whole mechanic is based upon what you roll on a 2d6. So you have uh, a 6 or less, that's, that's going to be a failure, but that moves the story forward. It's not, oh, I don't find the trap. It's uh, you uh, step on the trap, right? Now, you found the trap. 
You Just found not it. the way you were thinking. Not in the way you were thinking. <laughs> then the the mid level from you know seven to nine is is that you succeed, but there's a caveat. So you know, uh, okay, I, I have I have found the trap, but by finding the trap, I revealed myself, you know, to the monster. So that that's that's an example of what would happen there. And then on the uh, on the eight to ten, or ten plus, the uh, it's a success that usually gives you some sort of boon. And the way I characterize it in Happiest Apocalypse is that you know if you get a ten plus, that means you're now in control at the steering wheel of the game, and you get to decide how this pans out. But if you get a six or less, now it's my job as as the game master to decide what happens to you, and I might use a hard move. So um, those uh, behaviors are all categorized by moves, uh, which in D&D terms would be like actions. But you, uh, you, you have tailored moves based upon your character. And these moves have different specific outcomes based on your dice roll. The heart and soul, I believe, of PBTA games are, are the moves because they are setting specific. And that's what makes it so interesting. The first thing you do when you pick up a PBTA game is look at the moves because that gives you the texture, the tone, the tenor, everything you need to know about the setting. And, um, and, that's what makes, and, and, and that's what makes the games unique from one another. Okay. So, you know, my limited knowledge of it, I know that like what you would, I guess the comparison to like a class in D&D is defined by a playbook, which is the sort of the standard moves that your character has. So there's some basic ones like hack and slash that everyone can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's some that like, if you're a wizard, you will have a move that's basically like casting a spell. If you're a paladin, you may have a move that's like curing wounds or driving off demons or whatever. So like I said, so those moves define what the characters can do, but it also gives you a flavor of that character as opposed to the character next to you. So when we look at the playbook for, or the playbooks, I should say, for the happiest apocalypse on earth, like what what is like one that you would call out? Like this is a good representation, or maybe give us some examples of the moves we might find in it. Well, funny you say that, <laughs> because uh, yes, playbooks are often the character character defining uh, uh, their character definition of a of a PBTA game. In happiest apocalypse, there there are no playbooks. What? Whoops! <laughs> what happened to the playbooks? The purpose of a playbook is is to create definition for your character that's different than other characters. You have your own special moves, but they have to work together in some way, shape, or form. When I was designing Happiest Apocalypse and I was looking at playbooks, I realized that, and this was through a lot of play testing and a lot of headaches and a lot of talking this over with other game designers. Uh, I, I was looking at this saying, you know, this is a real problem because the, the character that you play in this game is a, is a, is a staff member of Mouse Park. All right, they, they, they work there. So you would naturally decide that the playbooks are going to be, uh, you know, different departments in the park, like maybe maintenance, you know, the person that runs the, uh, uh, the attractions, those kinds of people. But when you do that, uh, suddenly nobody's together. Is why would the maintenance guy and the attractions guy be in the same session confronting the same incident? And so whatever reason that was, was trite. And, and I ran a lot of games where I just had to just force people together, even though it would, I mean, the security guy looking at the cameras, having to be with the entertainer and the maintenance guy, it didn't make sense. So what I realized was that, you know, this isn't a playbook game. Uh, what I need to look at and focus on are what 
uh, your individual moves are based upon your background and who you are. Okay. So in my game, you actually fill out an employee's application. <laughs> That's cool. And you all, as a table, get to decide what department you're in. So you might be maintenance, you might be entertainment, you might be attractions, you know, you could be the bosses and administration or whatever. Uh, but you're all in the same place. This is you have different backgrounds. So with, based upon what you choose on your backgrounds, you can decide what moves you have. And there's categories from to, to pick from. And nobody can have the same moves. So you, you, you get uh, a lot of quote-unquote class balance, but without playbooks, background-driven. And that's, that's uh, as far as I know, I don't think there's any other PBTA game that does it that way. So playbooks seem to be a very integral part of the framework. But I had to, for the sake of my setting, I had to deconstruct it. Okay, I mean, again, that's innovation, and it's uh, it's an interesting take. And I mean, it, it, you know, syntax aside, you do kind of have a playbook. It's just the way that you don't take it off the shelf. You put it together yourself based off of, you know, the like a session zero or or however you would frame that. You know, the backgrounds. So you do have them. They're just different because at the end of the day, I'm still going to have a list of moves that I can do that you can't do, which is what a playbook does for you. It's just again, it's not. Um, plug and play i guess would be how i would describe it right i guess you you make your own playbook yeah yeah all right very cool so we're all working at the park now uh you know you called it the mouse park and we're going to get into that a little bit more in a a little bit (laughs) not the duck Uh, park not the duck park it's the mouse park and and we're all part of the same group whether again whatever department we're in the park what sort of things are we going to be confronting like you know we're what what are we going to face for an example well, there are some assumptions about the park that you go into with a session zero. Um, session zero is uh, really the beginning of the game where you're creating um, what is the park. That's something that's collaboratively decided. Um, you decide what the evil is that's in the park and how to characterize it. Uh, you even get to decide what the attractions are as a group. And there's a system of mechanics in place to decide what the, what the, uh, what the different parts of the park are and what the attractions are. And it's the, uh, it's the narrator is my word for game master. But the narrator will then come in and say, okay, we have to use these things that the table came up with for my adventure. So the narrator, what they do then is uh, they have a mechanic for creating an incident. And an incident is a series of threats or dangers that all have a clock. And at certain points, they're going to be doing different things. And the players will witness that and get to decide how to handle it or what to do about it as it goes on. Okay. So I think I asked my questions in the wrong order. Okay. So, so, So to give me context then, what would be an example of a move that we would end up with? Well, okay, let's say, for example, you were uh, trying to close a ride because, oh, I don't know, the animatronics have become alive and they're starting to eat guests. Yeah, that's bad. As an incident. So you're closing the ride, but you can't obviously tell the guests why your ride is closing. You have bosses that will say, you know, will we'll, we'll fire you or, or sacrifice you for doing that. And also you don't want to incite a panic. So, so you have some choices on what you can do about that. You could, uh, uh, as somebody is trying to get into the ride or confront you about not being able to get on the ride because they were waiting for two hours and they flew all the way here from, you know, Mississippi and they have their family of six and it's, you know, you have this situation. So you you could uh, do a move like charm a heart into deciding, which uh, would, if you rolled successfully enough, you could change their mind about something or convince them to do something. 
But, okay. But an apocalypse roll is not enough to just say, oh, okay, I'm going to roll my charm a heart into deciding. It doesn't work because my next question is going to be, okay, what is it that you do? Uh, you know, in D&D, you can say, okay, I'm going to stealth. It, 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 with this mechanic, you really have to descri- You have to do it in order to do it. So okay. you would have to say, okay, well, I'm going to tell this person that I will give them a refund. All they have to do is go to customer service and, uh, and they will refund it and just tell them that, you know, Chris sent you. All right. Uh, and, you know, and then, and then I would look at that and say, wait, no, that's not charm of heart and deciding. That's something different. That's, you're, you're actually being a little wicked there because you're lying. Uh, and so that might be another move altogether. And then I'll say, okay, well, roll that. Okay. And, and so let's say you get a 10. That means then, okay, all right, I'm going to go to, I'll go to guest services. Thank you very much. You know, handshake and, and the confrontation's over. But let's say you get a, a four. Oh, no. No, now he's mad because you're trying to shrug him off, just like that guy that just did it to him five minutes ago, and now you're doing it to me, and he's going to throw some punches. Well, that escalated quickly. Yeah, well, I could be a hard move on this because you failed your role. I could just actually punch you, and you take harm because, not me punching you, I mean the guy punching the character, and, and he could actually do some harm right there without you being able to dodge or do anything about it. Or I could say he's taking a swing. What do you do? That's my choice on how I want to escalate it. And then you could do something else. Okay, well, I'm going to try to get out of his way. That's a move. All right, so how are you going to get out of the way? Well, I'm going to jump off to the side. Now we're doing a be bold and daring move, which requires a roll. And do you accomplish gotcha. that? So, or the option is I'm going to break some femurs, <laughs> which means I'm going to fight back. Right. Then you're both fighting each other. You're both doing harm to each other, and the fists are going, and you know that's a whole other line right so you see it's all in the player's control how 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 things work you can't as a game master you really can't chart very well you can't plan you just have to know what your guys are doing and then that's it that's all you do so the the first thing that comes to my mind there is that this this sounds like a one-shot type game to me like do you envision it being like a campaign or is it kind of designed that each time you play it's going to be its own thing and then, you know you can maybe have like a tangentially connected game but not really a, an arc or am i just not thinking the right way i think you're right I, this is a hard thing to put into an arc i've tried i think that it's it, and this is true with some other games like like monster of the week is like this and tremulous is like this too i think even apocalypse world is like this although i know people that have had campaigns with apocalypse world but it's it's hard to string it together because you're really coming up with one arc this is the moment this is the monster of the week the pirates are coming alive what are you going to do once it's over, it's over. When I originally made the game, you were playing guests. And that was changed because it, it became quickly, I realized that you wouldn't ever come back. So it's not like you're going <laughs> to, you know, have a character yeah. that advances, you know, after some murderous uh, princesses cut you up, you know. So I had, a, I, I, I reversed it. And I'm still going to, I think in the future, maybe come up with a guest module with different mechanics that would play that. Okay. But uh, for this purpose, it, it really doesn't work very well unless you serialize it. So I'm going to be, you know, the, uh, the, the, the security guy. And so this week I'm having to deal with the, you know, the, the, the little kids have come alive on It's a Small World or What a Widow World or whatever the ride is called. And they're scaring the guests, so I have to take care of that. But this week, the boss needs to do a human sacrifice, so I have to, you know, stop him from picking the wrong kid, you know, for that. And this, this week, I'm confronting something else. So you're, you're playing the same character, but you're dealing with different things. And then in that way, you could create a meta arc 
Right. That goes over. At some point, there's going to be the question, like, why is this happening? Like, what is the true dark secret of the park? And that's something if you wanted to explore, it probably would take multiple sessions. But Right. But but it'd be more X-Files than, you know, anything else. So so it comes across pretty clear to me that this is clearly satire, that, that we are poking fun at these sort of iconic experiences that people have had. So do you feel like it works better if someone is a huge fan of a maybe of a mouse park or d- because of the horror elements, it plays okay anyways? I, I found both. There was uh, a guy that was at the con when I first started playtesting it who ended up becoming integral to a lot of the uh, design changes over time. He was a... Um, and he's an artist, and he's going to be doing the art for the book, or at least oh, some cool. of it. But he uh, he's very, very much into uh, the the mouse culture and um, knows it very well and intimately and just embraced it and ran with it and loved it. And then there are people that have no uh, one way or another care about uh, that culture at all and just totally enjoy it for its horror nature. Um, but yes, it's a satire. And so I think the more that you appreciate a satirical edge... I like to say that you use a satire as a weapon. <laughs> so, the more that you embrace that, uh, the, 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 the more it really comes alive. All right. So I can see. So in some cases, a satire could be like a sharp you know, blade. And other times it could be like a bludgeoning tool. Right. Like a <laughs> you know, choose your own satire. All right. So, so let's get to the question that probably anyone listening is, is currently thinking. Are you going to get sued <laughs> for making this game? Well, I can't predict the future, <laughs> but <laughs> the, uh, you know, I think that certainly there's risk. Uh, I'm not uh, blind to that, but I also believe that the uh, risks have been largely mitigated. You know, I've had some counsel on this. The fact of the matter is, I, I have no business, and I will not be using any trademarks. I'm not trying to, you know, defecate on intellectual property. That's not the intent here. It is satirical. And, you know, you would need to, because uh, uh, really what's going to happen is one of two things. Either it's going to be libel that I've made somebody lose business because they believe that this was true about the brand, uh, which requires proof. And, and there's a precedent. There's this movie called Escaping Tomorrow, I believe, or Escape from Tomorrow, something like that. Uh, they actually filmed the movie at Magic Kingdom in Florida. I read about this. They secretly filmed themselves. <laughs> yeah. And the Disney lawyers looked at it and said, you know, okay, uh, who has the bigger microphone? So if we go after this, then suddenly we're elevating this, this to our level. Um, we're justifying. And they didn't, they didn't pursue it because it would have given the movie a whole lot more of a platform. I'm just a guy in L.A. with a role-playing game. I mean, I'm not a threat to their brand. So I'm not concerned about that end. And in terms of uh, in terms of libel and, and, and intellectual property, well, I'm not going to use any trademarks. There was a story that broke this morning on USA Today of a, another movie that hit cans at won awards that was also filmed in the park. And that guy who made that movie that got all these awards at cans said exactly the same thing I'm saying right now, which is, you know, I'm not using the trademark. So worst case scenario, let's say... I get a cease and desist because they would have to do that. Then I'll, I'll, you know, change some things so that it's not so directly attributable to Disney. And that's fine. I'm okay with doing that. It'll take some of the venom out, and that's that's all right. And then it's over. Right. Yeah. You know, the way I imagine it is, it's like once it gets to the table, 
the players can do whatever they want because no one's going to be, you know, there. So if they want to straight up call it Disneyland, there's yeah. nothing to stop them. The book itself may need to be a little more coy with that. I mean, because it's very clear what you're aiming for. But just from what I've seen, I didn't see anything that was like, oh, that, that's that's not good. Not that I'm an expert, not that I'm a lawyer, but but my read through of your Kickstarter, I didn't see anything that was like, oh, no, I think that's going to be a problem. So, you know, I, I think it's smart for you to be aware of it. I think it's smart that you already kind of looked into it a little bit. But I really don't think that that is a that is a big concern. But again, don't know. I'm not an expert. <laughs> we'll figure this out together. So, yeah. But if you're backing a Kickstarter, you're going to get a game. I, if I get sued, it's my it's my thing, not yours. You're going to get the game. You know, it might not be called Happiest Apocalypse on Earth, or I might have to change some of the names of the moves or whatever. There's no risk in you getting the game or the game being produced. That's not a problem. But, what you know, how it looks might have to change if it's ever an issue. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the Kickstarter now. So so we'll kind of move into that. We Hopefully we've answered enough questions. Anyone listening knows what the game is about and kind of what the experience would be like. If not, certainly people can hit you up on Twitter, again, at, at GreyAuthor and maybe get some clarification. The Kickstarter will be running by the time this comes out, so I'm sure there'll be ways to get a hold of you there and get clarification. Uh, so your goal is very reasonable. It's only $3,500. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you have a very good shot of getting there. You know, Powered by the Apocalypse is just hot right now. Like yeah. there are A lot of people like them. A lot of people are, are going, probably going to back it for that reason. But if I want to back it, what am I going to come in at? What's the cheapest way that I can get a copy of the game? And then what's like the most expensive thing on your menu? <laughs> well, um, there is a $10 pledge, which is the lowest. Um, all pledges, you will get a beta version of the game upon closing of the funds. So once it funds, you get something right away. And it'll be beta, and I'm going to have to work through it, and you'll have to understand that about it. But you'll get that right away. Uh, but at the ten dollar level, you'll get you know the ebook, you know. And I, it, it, I'm a publisher, so I'm going to do some things that a lot of people don't. I'm going to have um, an edition for Amazon, Kindle, and that whole world, Barnes and Noble, that whole distribution channel through Ingram, and I'm going to also have an edition for Drive Through RPG. So you'll really get to get it anywhere in whatever format you want. If you want EPUB on your Kindle, you can get EPUB on your Kindle. If you want PDF from Drive Through, you can have that. So that's that is sort of the minimum. You'll get that, and then there's a uh, a paperback uh, at the next level. After that, it's hardcover, and then we start getting ridiculous. <laughs> hey, well, uh, that, lay it on me. What what is the most ridiculous thing on the menu? If you pledge ten thousand dollars, which is the maximum you can pledge in the United States. If you pledge that amount, then uh, as long as you're living in the United States, I will fly you to Los Angeles, where we're going to go to Disneyland with up to three of your friends. And it's going to be a happiest apocalypse on Earth experience at Disneyland. We're not just going to go on rides. Oh, no. You'll have a day for that. That's fine. No, we're going to have some stuff go down. And it's going to be an interactive experience. So, please, you know, I dare you yeah. to see what that looks like. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So, I, I do want to comment on the EPUB thing, because... I do think that is an avenue that is not being adequately utilized. Um, Cinda from She's a Super Geek, one of the shows in our network, she, and again, I apologize, I think she may even switch jobs, but at one point it was her job to trans, you know, transmit uh, products from one format to the other, and she just kept saying EPUB is such a better 
format than PDFs. And the usability of them is so much better. And just like the file size, like she's just going on and on about how much great it is. I don't understand why more people aren't publishing to EPUB. It's just not in the culture. I I mean, everywhere else they are. Uh, And that's the world I came from. I published 12 authors' books uh, through my small publishing company. And it's, you know, everybody wants it on Kindle. You go into the game world, everybody wants it on PDF, which... I think we're trying to replicate the print version digitally, and it doesn't really work that way. I hate PDFs as a game master. I have to have a tactile printed copy if it's a PDF because I can't use it. Now, if it's on my Kindle, um, that's a whole different world. You know, it's easy to navigate. I can use links, and then um, you know, or if it's interactive, if it's an app on iPad, I think some games have done that. But just straight up PDF is completely useless to me. I can't even read on it. And I know some people are accustomed to that. So the reason I'm doing two different editions is really because of my own needs as a person. I need to have a EPUB version, but I understand that there's a, a need for the PDF side too. Well, and again, I'm no expert, but, but from the people I've talked to, the number one thing they, they want about that PDF is that it's just searchable, that you can just do a you know, control F or whatever, Apple F, and then just find the rule that you're looking for without having to flip to the book or scroll up and down. But EPUB also does that. It also gives you the ability to search. So it does the thing that people want, but it also has greater flexibility and accessibility. So, yeah, I mean, again, I, if I had any control in the matter, I, I think more people would be doing it. So I think that's a great thing that you're, you're doing that for whatever reason. I think it's a good choice. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, you know, ideally, these games should have, a, you know, a, a D&D Beyond kind of thing where there's interactive... Uh, database that can be called up in a in an intuitive way for gameplay, but you know none of us. I you can't be everything. You know I, I'm a publisher, so I can do the layout. I can do a lot of things, but I can't you know design apps. I'm only human, <laughs> as far as we know. Now, um, so I'm looking at the Kickstarter again. You sent me a, a preview link, so I could take a look at it before it went live. And right now, it shows your your uh, estimated deliveries this year. Oh yes. So are you pretty well finished with? I mean, the writing. You you mentioned it would be a beta version. Like, do you think December is a is a realistic goal for this game? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, uh, beta is going to be done by funding. After that, it goes to. Uh, and by the way, I can't believe this happened. I'm shocked, but it goes to John Adamus who's going oh, yeah. to edit it for me. Can you believe that? He's going to edit it. He doesn't know me. I mean, I could yeah. be anybody. He's going to edit it for me. So that's, that's a great. good get. He's built in he's built into the fun into the into the goal. But anyway, I'll go to him. There's going to be some back and forth. I'm going to do everything I need to do to get it done, but I'm very comfortable that I can get it done by then. Um, my only consideration is that uh it has to happen really before Thanksgiving because after that the world turns upside down in my life and, <laughs> and we have the holidays and everything goes back to normal in January. So really my internal goal is even before December. Okay. Now, again, 3,500, it seems like a very reasonable goal. Obviously this is your first time kickstarting. So, you know, you don't have a pedigree behind you, that kind of thing. So I think 3,500 is a, is a good goal, but it is pretty low. So like what kind of, do you have any stretch goals like built in or, or even if they're just in your head for like, what if we get to 5,000 or no? Uh, yes, I do. I, I um, The reason it can be lo- low, and it needs to be, uh, I think for a couple of reasons, powered by the apocalypse, it's the independent culture. We don't want big, fancy, 400-page, laminate-bound color books. We want our, our scrappy, powered by the apocalypse book. So it doesn't have to be a $50 book. It can be a $10 book. So from a production standpoint, I can keep it low. 
I'm a publisher, so I have a lot of in-house capability. I can do all the design myself. I can do uh, all of the, uh, you know, I'm a writer, so I can do the writing. The biggest thing that I'm missing is art. Uh, so uh, I have uh, have Rob, who's going to be able to do the internal art um, for for this and the cover art. The stretch goals are about taking it to another level from a design point of view. So, you know, I have in the goals that I want uh, to get Ian Lannis to do the cover. Ian is an amazing artist, and I've worked with him on my DMs Guild stuff. But since he's an amazing artist, he costs a lot. So, um, and he's worth every penny. Uh, but, but yeah, I had to build him in as a stretch. I tried to not do that, but the goal would have been too high. One thing I really want to do with this game, also in addition to the design and more art, is to have a, a Spanish translated version. I learned early on that the Spanish-speaking demographic was really interested in this game, and I, I and I I couldn't say why I'm not investigated it, but I did recognize that. And I think, as a rule, just being in Southern California most of my life, coming from the Southwest in Colorado, I um. I, I think in terms of needing a Spanish version. So uh, I don't see a lot of that in the gaming industry. I think that uh, the Spanish-speaking population would be really grateful if we did more of it. Uh, and it's, it's a, one of the goals I would like to accomplish, but it's expensive. So we would have to hit a pretty high number to, to do that. Yeah, I see that coming, but it always seems like it's a year later and it's a separate project. You know, like like other people, like, okay, we got our thing funded. A year later, we'll do another Kickstarter or some sort of fundraiser to pay for that translation. I, I don't see a lot of people building that in from the ground up for whatever reason. Yeah, and I did that because a lot of the infrastructure is in place already. Uh, so I would just need a translation and an edit, and then I can flow it into the existing infrastructure. There's no more hard costs. If I were to do it separately, then I have to do it all over again. Um, I don't want to change the design or the content. It's just the words. So um, it made sense to do it that way. And I really hope it funds because I would, I would like to have that. That's very cool. And if you don't mind me asking, what level would that be? The goal is set at 15,000, um, which would be wonderful. That would be a really great goal to hit. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, again, I, I'm not Nostradamus. Don't have a magic ball. But I think 15 is possible. We'll see. Again, I'm pretty interested to see how quickly it gets to 3,500. And again, from then on, it's just gravy. Right. You know, it's like, he's like, yeah, we, we got what we needed. Let's see if we can get a little bit more. And that money really is paying for the editing and the production. I, you know, I, I was able to keep a lot of that in-house. So there isn't a lot of auxiliary expenses beyond that. And I think it's a reasonable goal. When I first calculated it, um, I had to pull some things out because I, I, I have to be cognitive of the fact that I'm not known in the industry. Um, so this is a way to to enter in 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 a you know in a, in a in a way that's not risky, right? No, Ian, I think this is a, a solid first outing, and uh, I definitely hope that you can get there. I think that you will, for whatever my thinking is worth. <laughs> so, is there anything I didn't ask about that that you really want? Like you're really excited about a certain thing that you want people to know, and I just didn't give you a chance to talk about it yet. I think that um, well, two things. First of all, uh, I would love if the listeners interacted with and watched the Mouse Park Twitter feed, which is called Visit Mouse Park. It is a um, hilarious, in-character Twitter feed that really plays on a lot of the satire. And the poor saps that uh, are, are tweeting out have to deal with all of these crises that appear in the park on a day-to-day basis. So it's a really fun 
uh, a fun way to interact with the game. And what's that again? Visit Mouse Park. I'm going there right now. I don't think I tweeted today, but there might be a good one in there. All right. And then what uh, What was the other thing that... Uh... <laughs> the other thing is um, I, 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 uh, I, I am just so thrilled to have been a part of the community in the past year and a half, two years that I started really driving this. Um, I think that the people that create and play Powered by the Apocalypse games are, are, are wonderful, intelligent, uh, very helpful people. Vincent Baker uh, uh, joined my Patreon, you know, and he didn't know me from Adam, but believed in the idea enough just to, to you know, give me a couple of clams every month, and I, I, I was amazed by that. Um, I had the unbelievable support of, of Dave, Dave Kazia, who who did um, Spirit of 77, and he just had his, his uh, successful Bedlam Hall Kickstarter, which is another Powered by the Apocalypse game in the horror genre. And he, he and his wife uh, have been just absolutely wonderful in helping me get this Kickstarter together. It's just a really great community, and I, I, I feel thankful to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, Christopher, I really appreciate you giving me some of your time tonight. Uh, again, anyone listening, the Kickstarter is live as at the time you're, you're listening. There will be a link in the show notes that you can go to directly or just go to Kickstarter and obviously search for it. The Happiest Apocalypse on Earth. I'm sure it will, will come up. Uh, you can see more of Christopher's work, obviously, on DMs Guild, also at his blog, Christopher.world. Find him on Twitter at Gray Author. And then if there's anywhere else, that, like an email or any other way people should get a hold of you. I, I'm uh, on Google Plus a lot. Uh, that's a great place to find me. I, I love all of the communities there. And uh, and I'm, uh, yeah, you know, one fun place which your listeners should be aware of is RPG Talk. And that is a, a Slack channel. Uh, and if you look up uh, uh, RPG Talk Slack, you'll find it, and they'll invite you in. There's a very wonderful community of role players and game designers and developers, and uh, it's it's one of my favorite places to be. So you want to talk to me directly, that's a good place to go, and Google+. Very cool. Well, once again, Christopher, best of luck on the Kickstarter. We'll definitely be checking in on you, seeing how you're doing. Uh, anyone listening, please go check it out. Uh, and until next time, this has been Michael and for Christopher, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG. Our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. 
We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com and reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google Plus at vrpgacademy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. <laughs>